Amen. First Peter chapter 3. By way of introduction tonight, I want to share with you um, something that the Lord has done in my life, something that he's changed in me really just over the past couple of years. Um, I've been a Christian now for about 19 years. And uh, what that means to me is that I'm coming up on that time when I'll have been a Christian uh, for as long as I was not a Christian. So I was 19 when I got saved, and I'm now going into my, um, well, it'll be 19 years that I've been been a Christian, uh, and that's an interesting place to be, to realize that I've lived now as long as a Christian as I did as, as a non-Christian, and just to, to, to think about that and think about the change uh, that's happened in my life and where I would be if the Lord hadn't saved me, knowing the direction that I was going when he did, you know. But um, but one of the things that... that uh, um, that really um, was instrumental in my Christian walk and and my my uh, calling the ministry and my love for the Word of God was was that for probably I would say about fifteen the first fifteen years of that I had uh, almost what I would call an obsession with Bible prophecy uh, eschatology end times events things concerning the second coming uh, of Jesus Christ you know um, and 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 I still do you know but something over the past. I would say, you know, three, four years uh, has changed in that a little bit. Now, um, don't misunderstand me. My beliefs concerning all of that have not changed at all, not, not even a little bit. I still believe in the preeminent, premillennial, pre-rapture uh, coming of Jesus Christ. I believe that he could come at any moment, and I hope that he does. Uh, you know, and I'm sure that I'm not alone there. You know, uh, I, I believe that we're in the last days. I believe that we are the very much the final generation. I, I believe those things. I stand completely uh, uh, on all of that. And I believe that we should live in a constant expectation and in a constant readiness for his appearing and for his coming. None of that uh, has changed. All of that stands. But what has changed in me over these past couple of years, uh, and I, I think for the good, is that I have um, come to understand and realize and appreciate the value uh, of what it means to be a Christian on the earth right now. Um, you know, whereas before I would say I was more of an escapist, you know, Lord, come, I just want to get out. I want to get into heaven. I want to move on. And I still do. Don't get, don't mishear me in all of that. But I've come to appreciate and value the privilege and the honor that it is to be a Christian on the earth in the will of God and to serve his purposes while we wait for him to come. You know, so the end of all things is not, Lord, just get us out of here. But it has more so become, okay, God, if I'm here, then I don't want to waste any of the time that you've given to me. I don't want to waste a single breath uh, in not bearing fruit that I could bear for eternity before you come. And here's, here's why I think that's important. And here's why I, I've, I'm glad for this change that, that's happened in me over these past couple of years. Because there are things that we get to do as Christians on the earth that we will not get to do once we are in heaven. There are experiences that we can have, uh, things that we can obtain, things that we can accomplish on the earth in this present form that once we go to heaven, we no longer have the opportunity to do. Three, just to consider quickly, and they do relate to 1 Peter chapter 3. The first is that we get to know God by faith. The Bible says that when we are taken, when we're raptured or when we die and we stand before him, it says that then we will know even as we are known. That we'll see face to face. Now we see through a glass darkly, but then we'll know even as we're known. And so now we have this incredible privilege that we can know God by faith. And there is something to that relationship. And, and in his wisdom, he has established it, that that be the, the form of the relationship that we have with him right now. That we don't see him, 
but yet by faith we know him and there's a relationship and a depth and a growth that happens by faith. And there's a treasure there, something that for all of eternity we will thank him for and that, that we'll understand uh, why he did things that way. The second thing uh, that we can do now that we will not be able to do in heaven is that we can experience God and we can learn of God in suffering. Now, when we get to heaven, the Bible is very clear. There is no sickness. There is no pain. There is no death. There is no sorrow. There are no tears. There is no suffering in heaven. All things are perfect. But there is much that we can learn of God and much that we can experience of God through the sufferings and in the sufferings that we experience in this present world. And none of that will be a possibility to us once we get to heaven. And so this time that we're here on earth now, through the trials and the difficulties of this life, the value that is added to our lives through those things is exclusive to our experience here on earth. And and once you've been through some of that and you've tasted some of that, you can appreciate that value and you can say, okay, God, if, if your will is right now for my life that I experience these difficulties, that I might know you through them. And that I might learn the things of you that can be learned in no other way. Then so be it, Lord. Let it be for now. And I've come to value that and appreciate that in the wisdom of God that he's allowed that to be for this time now. And then the third thing that we get to do now that we will not get to do once he comes is that we get to play a part in building and shaping heaven. And that's a remarkable thing if you stop and think about it. Because Jesus told us one of the last things that he said is that he was going to prepare a place for us. And we've wondered for all of these 2,000 years, these two millennia, what that means and what does it look like that he's going to prepare a place for us. But the remarkable thing to consider is that at the same time he is there and he is very definitely preparing a place for us, we, while we are on the earth, we are playing a part in the same thing. Because the Bible says that we, the Christians, the citizens that make heaven heaven, that we are the living stones that make up that eternal habitation. And because we play a part in the winning of souls, Revelation chapter 22, it says that the spirit and the bride say come. The spirit is God, right? But the bride is you and I. And we are co-laborers with him in the winning of souls while we're here on this earth. And so we're shaping literally the landscape of heaven through the ministry and the influence that God has given us in the lives of the people that we're connected to. And so we both are building heaven and we're also shaping it because God has given it to us to not only win souls, but also to play a part in transforming people's lives. And bringing them further in their knowledge and in their faith and in their relationship with God. And that's going to translate into their reward and our reward and their position and responsibility and our position and responsibility. And so as we're here on earth serving God's purposes and walking in his will, we're not only building, but we're shaping the very landscape of heaven. And that is something that is exclusively given to us while we're here on the earth. We cannot do anything once we're there to that end. And so there's a value to the privilege that it is to be on earth, even though we long for heaven, even though we so would welcome the sound of the trumpet and to be in his presence and to move on with with eternity and to no longer have to deal with the sufferings of this present age. We would love to put it behind us. But yet there's something of value and treasured uh, in the whole thing. Now, concerning the will of God, because sometimes we, we look around at the world and we, we see the um, just the, the darkness. We see uh, some of the atrocities that take place. We see the corruption. Uh, we, we, we feel the, the pressure and the, the hurt of it. And we say, God, why, why are you allowing this thing to continue? And so just a few verses I want to share with you concerning the will of God and why he hasn't come back yet. The first very familiar verse, John chapter 3, verse 16. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, listen, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And the very essence, the very core heartbeat of the gospel lies in the truth of that verse. 
that God so loved this lost world that he was willing to pay the price of his son's blood in order to see that world redeemed unto himself. And who he would include in that redemption is the whosoever. That is, that anyone that is willing to come to God by faith in Jesus Christ and allow the blood of his sacrifice to be the atonement for their sin, that they can be saved. That's the will of God for every human being that's alive on the planet right now. That whosoever would believe, not could believe, but would believe, would not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the will of God, is that people would be saved. Luke chapter 14, verse 21 to 23. Jesus spoke a parable in this passage about a man who threw a wedding feast for his son and invited guests, but those guests refused to go because they were too preoccupied in other uh, pursuits. And so um, Jesus in response to these denials of the invitation, um, says this. He said, so that servant came and showed his Lord these things, that, that is that no one wanted to go to the wedding. And so the master of the house being angry said to his servant, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as you have commanded and yet there is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come that my house may be filled. The desire of the Lord is that his house would be filled. And so he, he is reaching out to whosoever would so that his house would be filled with people. Second Peter chapter three, verse nine. Peter again writes and he says this concerning the, the, the second coming of the Lord. He says in, in um, uh, chapter 3 verse 9, he says that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, that is the promise of his coming, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us word, that is that he's waiting, he's extremely patient in his second coming or in his return. Why? not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So what Peter is telling us is that the reason why God bears with the atrocities and the, the darkness of the world and the pain that we endure and feel is because he's not desiring that any should perish, but he's longing that, that, that more lost people will respond to the goodness of his grace and, and receive his gift of salvation. The fourth scripture I want to share with you is Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. Ezekiel speaks by the Spirit of God. And he says, say unto them, as I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? God tells us in his, in his word, by his spirit, that his heart is not that wicked men should perish. God doesn't take delight in the death of the wicked to see them perish or to see them cast off. He longs to see them to repent and to turn that they might be saved. No one is outside the reach of that salvation. Jonah chapter 4 Verse 10, the context is the last two verses of the book of Jonah. And Jonah is upset because God spared the city of Nineveh. Jonah hated Ninevites and wanted them destroyed. But God saved Nineveh in spite of Jonah's desire for them to perish. And when Jonah was sulking over God's salvation, what a great representative, right? of the heart of God, God seeks to reason with Jonah in the closeout of the book. And, 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 and the Lord says to him in verse 10, he says, you have had pity on the gourd, a plant that, that grew up and then shriveled. For, the, for, the, for uh, the which you have not labored, neither made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city wherein are more than 120,000 persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand and also much cattle? See, when, when Jonah looked at Nineveh, all he saw was wickedness. All he saw were cruel Assyrians, debauchery, 
pride, wretchedness. That's all he could see in the human. But when God looked at Nineveh, he saw 120,000 children who didn't even know the difference between their right hand and their left hand. And it moved his heart of compassion to pour out his spirit to send a prophet to them to declare the word of the Lord. And then he moved an entire pagan, Gentile, wicked city to repentance because the Lord had pity on lost people and didn't desire any to perish, but that all should come to repentance. And then finally, the last verse I want to share with you is from Second Corinthians chapter 5. And it's verses 18 and 19. And Paul says there to you and I, he says that all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and has committed unto us now the word of reconciliation. And so the will of God, as we look at it here, is that he is telling us that the singular reason why he hasn't returned yet and why you and I are still here in the midst of all that's going on in this world is because God has a heart for lost people and he longs to see more of them saved and brought to a saving knowledge of his son so that they might be be forgiven and not perish. And his will and desire for you and I is that we play a part in that. He says that he has committed unto us the ministry of reconciliation. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And now he has committed to you and I the word of reconciliation that our lives might play a part in building his kingdom and winning souls for all of eternity. Now, this is not the beginning of a motivational speech. Wherein the preacher looks at a congregation and says, so you need to and I need to get out there and do our part and try harder and preach more and witness. And that's not what this is. This isn't a motivational speech. And the reason for that is because we've all been there and done that, haven't we? Every one of us in this place has longed to be used in a greater measure. All of us have sought to win souls. We have shared with our co-workers, with our family members, with our friends, with the people that we knew before we came to Christ. We've done that and we've seen very little fruit, oftentimes, from, from the efforts that we've put forth. And oftentimes, when we've done all that we can, we find ourselves discouraged, we find ourselves frustrated, we find ourselves unmotivated and almost in a state of retreat, thinking that, God, you've given me this message and this calling, but I feel completely hopeless. What we need in the days wherein we live is not more motivation amongst Christians to go out and try harder and do more. But what we need in these days is we need a movement of the Spirit of God. We need an outpouring like what was experienced in Nineveh in the days of Jonah. We need a visitation of God upon the earth like what it was like in the days of Solomon when Solomon dedicated the temple and he lifted his hands towards heaven and he prayed to the Lord and he asked God to come in. And it says that the glory of God descended upon the temple and that the cloud of his presence filled the place so abundantly that even the priests couldn't stand before the Lord to minister. But every single person was prostrate on their face before God because his presence was so real and so powerful. And the revival and the awakening and the movement that happened amongst the people of God in those days was so powerful and so lasting that it influenced the entire generation. And there wasn't a man, a woman, a child, any of the tribes, anyone within the borders of those lands and even beyond the borders of those lands that wasn't affected by the movement of God that was affected in those days, in the days of the dedication. What we need is a movement like it was in the days of Elijah. 
When he prayed and he said, oh, Lord God, that they might know that I have done these things according to your word and that you are the God of Israel. And it says that fire fell down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice in the altar and licked up the water. And the hearts of the fathers was turned back to the children and the children to the fathers. And a whole generation was restored in those days because there was a visitation of God as he poured out his spirit upon the earth in it. That's what we need in our days. We need a movement like it was in the days of Ezra. When they rebuilt the temple after the captivity. And he stood for three hours every day reading from the law of Moses. Reading the commands and the word of God. And it says that the spirit of God came upon the people. And they wept because they recognized their own iniquity. And they confessed their sin. And God met them there at that place of confession and repentance. And there was a revival again. A movement of God. And again a whole generation was affected by what followed the revival that was there in those days. We need a visitation like it was in the days of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descended upon 120 believers in an upper room in Jerusalem wherein all of their efforts prior to that time had been futile and fruitless and scant and little. But when the Spirit came upon them, the smallest word spoken by Peter resulted in the salvation of 3,000 souls. Within a few days of the joy and the effect of the Spirit in their lives, there were 5,000 that were added to the Lord. It says that great grace came upon them, that many were multiplied and added to the Lord. It was a move of God that affected a generation, and the branches of it reached out into the entirety of the world. We need a time like Peter prophesied would happen in the church times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord when God would again visit the earth. What we need in these days is we need what they had during the time of the Reformation. When Martin Luther opened up his Bible and began to read the word of God and he saw the flaws in the system that he was a part of and he said, no, we need to not stand upon the traditions of men, but we need to stand upon the word of God. And he nailed 95 theses to the door of the, you know, chapel there in Edinburgh or wherever that was, you know, in Germany. And the Reformation was birthed. And the reachings of that into Europe and into Scotland and Wales and England and ultimately to the United States of America. And then we read of the awakenings that took place throughout the, the, the various times. That's what we need in our day. We need God to visit the earth again. We need a revival. We need an awakening. And listen, church, if the Lord has not returned yet, and he hasn't, as far as I know, then it is our business and our duty as the church to seek him that he would pour out his spirit in our days like we read about in those days. And he knows and we know that we need it. That if there isn't something that happens where God visits the earth again, then there's nothing else for us to pray for but that he would come. Because apart from him, we can't. Apart from us, he won't. But apart from him, we can't. You say, well, what does that have to do with 1 Peter chapter 3, the text of our scripture tonight? The answer is that it has everything to do with the text of our scripture. And the reason is because if we're going to pray and we're going to ask God to pour out his spirit and to revive and to move in a powerful way, then there are certain things that God has asked from us that either move his hand in response to our prayer or restrict his hand that he won't hear us and answer it when we ask him to do it. And so what Peter gives to us in this chapter, essentially, is he gives to us four things that God asks of us as the church And they concern our relationships with human beings, with one another, that are precursors to his movement upon the earth. And that's ultimately where Peter is heading to at the end of the chapter uh, as we conclude. Now, we looked at the first of the four last week, the four things that God requires of us. And the first is our behavior uh, towards one another in our marriages. And we talked of that last week in the first seven verses of the chapter. But where we resume tonight in verse 8 concerns our love for one another in the church. 
And very important to God, very critical if we're going to see the hand of God move in the days that we live in, that we listen to what Peter says to us, the instruction that he gives concerning our relationships in the body of Christ. Notice what he says in verse 8. He says, finally, be ye all, and that is all of us now, the body of Christ, you and I, be ye all of one mind having compassion one on another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that you are thereunto called, that you should inherit a blessing. He tells us, first of all, in terms of our relationship with one another, is that we are to be of one mind. Now, what's interesting to me is that every time in the Bible we read about an awakening or a move of God in some way or in some generation, one of the precursors to that movement is that it always mentions in some way that the people were of one mind. In Nehemiah chapter 8, when Ezra read the word of God for three hours a day and the, the great revival took place that shook the ground in his day, The chapter begins by saying that the people, that is all the nation of Israel that had been regathered, that they gathered as one man by the water gate in Jerusalem. Wow, that was quick. Did that actually go up there? You're good. (laughs) That wasn't even in the script, you know. That's right. One man. It says that they they gathered together. And so there was a unity. There was a like-mindedness amongst the people of God as they gathered together to hear the word of God. In the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, when the Holy Spirit was first poured out upon the church, it says there that the people all gathered together and that they were of one accord in one place. One accord means of one mind. That there was a single-mindedness among them. They weren't all fragmented, seeking their own will or seeking their own thing or seeking God for their own thing. But rather, they came to God for what God wanted, and they were unified under His will. And what Peter challenges you and I to, now in our days, as we would seek a blessing from God, knowing that we need a blessing from God, is he tells us that we're to be of one mind. Now, how is it that a people as diverse as we are, from every different walk of life, in every different age, call out of every class of people, with all different personalities and all different likes and dislikes, how is it that we can be of one mind? And the answer is twofold. Number one is that we serve the same God. And when we submit and surrender our lives to that God and to His will, we become of one mind because we're all seeking that one will, the will of Him. And the second way that we do it is by the Word of God. The Word of God declares to us the ways of God, the heart of God, and the person of God. And when you and I, as his people, bring ourselves in submission and in subjection to his word to be the basis for our opinions of life and our opinions of truth and our opinions of need and who he is, then we become like-minded because we're all measuring according to the same standard. One of the things I used to love to do when I worked in the trades was uh, what we would call um, building firewalls. And, you know, like buildings, commercial buildings like this, there's certain walls like a hallway wall or an exterior wall where the wall has to protrude through the ceiling and go all the way up as high as the ceiling of the building. But once you get up above the ceiling, there's all kinds of stuff up there. There's air conditioning ducts and electrical wires and plumbing pipes and sprinkler pipes and, you know, just all kinds of things. There's cue decking and trusses and framing and and, and just tons of stuff. So to build a wall through all of that is a little bit of a challenge. So what you do is you would have one guy up on, on a scaffold or up on a lift who was taking measurements, and you would have another guy on the ground who was then marking out the the, the sheetrock or the drywall to make uh, all the penetrations so that when you brought the piece up, it would fit, uh, you know, with all with all the stuff that it had to go through. And and it was there was almost like a fellowship. There was almost a, a communion that happened between the guy on the, the scaffolding and the guy on the ground because you had to speak kind of the same language and you had to all be measuring with the same rule. And and if you had a guy that had a faulty tape measure or a faulty eye or a faulty brain, it didn't work. 
because there wasn't a like-mindedness between the two parties. And so one guy would be calling out numbers, the other guy would be cutting, but when you try to fit the piece, it wouldn't go. And it would just be a waste of time and a waste of a piece. Well, in the body of Christ, you and I as Christians in the world, if we're going to make an impact for God when he pours out his spirit, if we're not measuring according to the same rule, then it's impossible for us to make an impact on a culture, upon a soul, or upon a generation. Because what happens is that we start arguing amongst ourselves rather than fighting the true battle, which is against the darkness and against the principalities and powers that keep men in blindness and in chains and in bondage. And so like-mindedness for the believer is that we come into submission with the word of God and that we're measuring according to the same standard. So what I believe is what God says. And if I believe what God says and you believe what God says, then we're measuring according to the same standard. And so for us to be of one mind, we must be in submission to one God and we must be in submission to the word of that God that reveals to us who he is. It cannot be overexpressed how important the word of God is to the Christian. It is the lifeblood and the bread by which we move. For a Christian to not have a relationship with the Bible, and I know that sounds strange, but it is so true. If you don't have a relationship with the Bible, you are cutting off your legs in this faith. It is so critical, so important. Be of one mind. Now, once we're of one mind, he goes on then to say that we're to have compassion on one another. Compassion means that we are sympathetic to the experiences and feelings of other people where they're at. It's having passion in a communal sense. That is that we are passionate about what other people are thinking and feeling. It's other-centeredness. We're to have compassion. We're also to love as brethren. What does it mean to love as brethren? Here's what it means. It means that I can get into a fight with my brother... And it could come to blows. And if you have a sibling, you know what that looks like, you know. But after that's over, we're brothers again. I mean, we are just that night. It's like it never happened, you know. And we can we can argue. We can just get hot. Our tempers can flare. But when it's all over, we look at each other. We're like, we're cool. Yeah, we're cool. You know, it's good. We know it. And we move on. And we can put that behind us. And it's as though it never happened. And so there's a continual forbearance and a continual forgiveness and an understanding because we're part of the same family. He goes on to say, I have so so much ink in here, I can't find the words. He says, love his brethren. And then he says, be pitiful and be courteous. That is, be merciful. That means forgiveness. And courteous means to be kind. So our attitude towards one another, aside from being like-minded in the word of God, is that we're to have compassion, we're to love one another, we're to be merciful, and we're to be kind towards one another. And that's that's important to God that those things be characteristic of our attitude and our, our, our affections concerning and relating to one another in the body of Christ. How do we do that? Because sometimes doesn't it happen that there's certain people in the church that are okay to deal with, but then there's certain people in the church that you're just like, I don't know if I can... I don't know if I can genuinely and sincerely love that person. You know, they just, they drive me crazy. The things they do, they don't make sense. Every time they walk in the room, the hair on the back of my neck stands up. And I just, I don't know how to love, love that person, that Christian, the way that God asked me to. So how do we do it? We take the things that Peter says here and we actually apply them in our thinking towards that person or towards that group of people, towards that brother or sister. Here's the facts concerning every Christian, and it's true of you and it's true of me. Every single one of us, in some form or another, is suffering right now. We are all struggling and going through various things that we're trying to navigate our way through in in this life. And, And so often we become so consumed with what we're dealing with and what we're going through that we forget that other people are going through things as well. And if we're armed with a a compassionate and pitiful mindset, then it opens our understanding to the fact that other people are going through things too. And some of the reasons that they are the way they are is because of the things that they're going through. Here's another fact concerning every Christian, you and I included, is that every single one of us has things, have things about ourselves that we absolutely despise. 
There are things about me that I hate. Part of my personality, certain weaknesses that I have, certain um, phobias or whatever it is, there are things about me that I loathe, that I can't do anything about, but that I know God is working on within my life. And part of being compassionate and pitiful is recognizing that if that's true about myself, then that's true about other people as well. And the thing about another person that drives me absolutely insane probably drives them insane too. And God is probably at work in their lives to change those things and adjust those things just like he's changing and adjusting things in my life as well. And when I become aware of that, it gives me grace to be able to love a person that otherwise would be unlovely. This is also true about every Christian, every believer is that every human being this side of glory is a mix of both bad and good. That's all of us. There's good things about us that God has got his hand on, that he's changed, that are positive qualities. And there's things about every one of us that are just horrid. You know, that if God were to resign us to those areas of our flesh, we would just be disgusting people. And so, basically, look in the mirror, right? We look at, we look and we see what it is about us. And if we can't have compassion and extend kindness and lay down our prejudices and our arms and our gripes and our bitterness towards other people in the body of Christ, no matter how close or distant they are to our lives, then part of the reason is because we've become self-righteous and we've forgotten that we aren't perfect either. But it's important to God and it's important to the cause of Christ in the testimony of his kingdom in the world that we love one another. Unity in the body of Christ is a precursor to revival. And without it, God will not move. His spirit is quenched and shut down. And our efforts, as fervent as they be, will be minuscule or completely fruitless altogether. Because without him, we can't. And thus, unity is essential. We have a responsibility, not only to the world that is looking for a savior in the church and for the church to be their church, we have a responsibility to them to be unified, but we also have a responsibility to the next generation of Christians that are growing up in our midst right now, our sons and daughters that are looking into this faith for themselves and with foggy, confused eyesight are looking at it and saying, what is it that you believe? Because I can't see through the dimness of what you're trudging through. And we have a responsibility to them to do everything in our power to see God's hand at work. And part of that work is the unity that should exist amongst the believers. That, Peter says, we might inherit a blessing. And then he moves on uh, in verse 10 to quote from Psalm 34, giving promise concerning this very thing. He says, for he that will love life. Do you want to love life? I do. Do you want to end up in heaven one day and say, God, it was a glory. It was a pleasure to serve you for those years that I was on earth. He that will love life and see good days. Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. That is that we don't slander one another. We don't gossip about one another. We don't speak evil of one another. Let him eschew or hate evil, and do good, let him seek peace and pursue it. Now, he doesn't say, let us be pacifistic, thus maintaining peace. No, he says, seek it out. That if there's a rift, if there's a schism, if there's an element of hatred, don't just say, well, I just won't feed into it and just let it ride. No. Violently, Pursue peace where there is a rift and where there is evil. With wisdom, of course. The Bible says as much as is in us, to the extent that it's in our power, we should live peaceably with all men. Sometimes it's outside of our power. But to the extent that it is within our power, we're to seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord, here's the promise, are over the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. The condition that God places upon his blessing and upon his answering of our prayers is that we are obedient to him in this manner. 
That is, if we don't possess and seek after unity and love in the body of Christ, then we can pray till we're blue in the face that God would pour out His Spirit upon our generation. But He won't hear us. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and His ears to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is He that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? And so our relationship towards one another in the body of Christ is to be one of compassion, of love, of like-mindedness in the Word of God, of pity, and of kindness, seeking peace and pursuing it to the best of our ability, that we might be of one mind, that when we pray, God pour out your spirit, that he would hear us, and that he would meet us, and pour out his spirit upon us. He moves on then, number three in this chapter, concerning our relationship with the lost world. So first, our relationship with our spouse. Second, our relationship with our brothers and sisters in the church. And then in verse 14, he now shifts to our relationship to unbelievers. And he says this. He says, but and if you suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Now, part of the reality of what we face in this world is that we suffer persecution, affliction, and hatred from those that are unbelievers. The Bible says that we are citizens of the kingdom of light, but that we once were citizens of the kingdom of darkness. I don't think there can be two things that are more diametrically opposed than light and darkness. God is good. Darkness is evil. So you have dark and light, good and evil, death and life. So there's a huge contrast between the child of God and the person who's on the outside, the unbeliever. And Jesus said in John chapter 14, he said that if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. The servant isn't greater than his Lord. If they persecuted me, they're going to also persecute you. And thus, part of the experience that we're going to have with unbelievers, if we're shining as lights in the world, is that they're not going to like us. They're not going to receive our testimony. And they're going to slander. They're going to gossip. They're going to hate. They're going to trip up. They're going to mock. Those are the things that they're going to do, because that's what unbelievers do to believers. It's what we did to unbelievers before we were believers ourselves. But Peter says, if we suffer for righteousness sake, he says, happy are we. And he tells us, don't be afraid at the terror that they bring, neither be troubled by the experience of it. So don't let it affect you. Don't let it cause you to retreat and turn back. But rather, here's what we're to do. Verse 15. He says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. The word sanctify there that he uses, Peter, it means to lift up, It means to honor. It means to venerate. It means almost to, I hate to use the word, but it it is what it is, idolize, which you're not idolizing if it's God because he's God, right? We're worshiping the true and the living God. But basically what he's saying is set God in a place in your heart that is so high that it cannot be moved or that you cannot be moved from your allegiance and your worship towards him. Now, what's our tendency when people begin to mock us for our faith. We hide it, right? We put up a veil. We try to blend with the world. We talk like them. We dress like them. We commune with them on their level to the best of our ability. It's, it's, it's a means of self-defense or self-protection so that we don't endure and face persecution for the things that we preach and the things that we believe. But Peter says part of the guard that we keep against that is that we keep God in such a place in our affections and in our view, that though we're suffering persecution for righteousness' sake, we're not moved from our allegiance to God or our love from God. He's sanctified in our hearts. So he's to hold first place in us no matter what we're going through. And then he goes on to say, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. In other words, every time we walk out of our house, step onto a job site or into a supermarket or go into a market or a social gathering or a place, wherever we are, 
that we're to go in a readiness to be able to answer a question that might be thrown our way concerning our faith or our hope or what we believe in. That we're to live in a perpetual state of readiness to give an answer or a defense, and here's what the defense is of, the reason for the hope that we have. Why is it tonight, as you sit here as a worshiper of God, that you have hope in him? What's the reason for your hope? Now, this verse sets me free. Because I used to think that what this verse meant, or what I was supposed to do, is that I was supposed to have all the answers that every skeptic was to bring <laughs> and be able to dispute and argue and give reason to the faith you know, that we have. And so people would come and say, can God make a rock so big that he can't throw it? And I go, oh, I don't know. He's God, so he can make the rock so big, but he's God, so it's impossible that he wouldn't be able to move it. You've got me, you know. I used to think that I had to have all the... No, 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 no. What he's saying is he's saying, be ready to give an answer for the reason, for the hope that's in you. Can I ask you tonight, do you have hope in you concerning the kingdom of God and the person of God and the plan of God and the future that God has for you? And if you have that hope, then what's the reason for that hope? And if you have that hope, it should be very simple for every one of us to articulate in simple terms the reason for that hope. There's a man in the ninth chapter of John who was born blind. In all of his life, there was nothing that could be done to heal that blindness. And he had one single swift encounter with the Son of God who simply laid his hands, spit, touched his eyes, prayed a prayer, and the man's eyes were opened. And what was impossible amongst men was accomplished by God. And that man left his encounter with Christ changed forever. A few hours later, he was confronted by the Pharisees, the opponents of Jesus. And they asked him a reason for the hope that he had. And he looked at those men who were saying all kinds of blasphemous and crazy things about Jesus. And he said, whoa, 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 you guys are way too technical for me in your questions and in the desire for answers. He said, I don't know the answer to any one of your questions. He says, but this I can tell you. I was blind, I now see. End of testimony. That was the defense that that man gave that day. That was the reason for the hope that was, was in him. And it was given in meekness, that is power under control, and fear, that is out of respect for God. He didn't disrespect or dishonor God in the testimony that he gave. And what Peter is asking of us concerning our relationship with unbelievers is that we live in a state of readiness to be able to communicate in simple and clear terms the reason for the hope that we have. And if we don't have a hope, then we need to question that and say, God, why don't I have a hope? Has I, have I been living a merely religious outward form of Christian principle without knowing who you are, without knowing your presence, without knowing the hope and what it is and what it means within my life? What he asks of us is that we simply share with others the reality of what God has done for us. He says, having a good conscience. That means that our conscience can testify that we're behaving to the best of our ability or to the best that our maturity allows or appropriates. Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good lifestyle in Christ. That is, they might speak evil of you and say things about you that are slanderous, but at the end of the day, they're speaking those things to your shame because everyone knows that what you're actually doing is right, that what you're doing in the way that you're living is life. Light. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that you suffer for well-doing than for evil doing. And so Peter's word to us concerning our relationship with unbelievers is that we are to uh, be ready to give them an answer. The Lord is to be sanctified in our hearts. We're to give uh, a reason for those things with a good conscience, um, enduring the sufferings that come into our lives uh, in the will of God because it's better to suffer for uh, good than for evil. 
Then he goes on and he kind of wraps up and he gives an answer to the great question that this chapter presents before us. He says this in verse 18, and as we draw to a close, he says, For Christ also has once suffered for sins. Now, he just finished telling us that we should endure suffering at the hands of unbelievers. And now he compares us to Christ in the same vein. And he says that Christ also suffered once for sins. The just, that is Jesus, who was righteous, for the unjust, that is, those that were sinners and those that were lost, that, here's the reason, he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. What in the world is Peter saying there? Because it's, it really is the key to understanding the entirety of this whole chapter and concept that Peter's preaching on. What is the reason why we suffer in human relationships? What is the reason for our marital difficulties, our difficulties amongst other people in the body of Christ, our difficulties with unbelievers? He says, listen, just as Jesus, who was just, suffered so that he could bring the lost into salvation, so also the suffering that you and I face and endure serves the same purpose. God uses our suffering and our attitude in suffering in order to bring those that watch to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He did it that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. He was made alive again by the Spirit. By the way, do you know that's what we pray for? No one can come to a saving knowledge of Christ unless they're quickened by the Spirit. When we pray for awakening, when we pray for revival, when we pray that God would pour out His Spirit, that's what we're asking for. We're asking that his spirit would awaken or convict the conscience of the unbeliever. Bring them to a knowledge of their need for for a savior that when we preach to them, they're ready and able to receive it. He says, by which, that is by the spirit that raised him, also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is eight souls, were saved by water. Now, pause for just a moment and understand the illustration and the example that Peter is employing here to make his point. He reaches way back to the days when Noah was called to build an ark. In days when judgment was pending. When a message was being preached to a lost generation that Judgment was looming unless there was repentance and faith. And what he says is that when Jesus was raised from the dead, or sorry, when Jesus went into the grave, the first thing that he did, and it was during those three days that he was in the ground, is that he went and preached to the spirits which were in prison. What spirits? The spirits of those that died in the flood. The spirits of those unregenerate, wicked men that perished in the flood of Noah's day. And what Jesus declared to those spirits that were in prison during those three days is that he conquered sin and that the testimony of Noah was real. He vindicated the message that they had blasphemed, that there was a God in whose eyes they could find grace if they would turn to him in repentance. And Jesus sealed their eternal lost destiny when he accomplished upon the cross what he did and then his subsequent resurrection three days later. He did more in those three days, but that's a study for another time. But why does Peter use that example here? It seems like a far-reaching example. Here's why. Because he compares it, that is, the long-suffering of God in Noah's day to the long-suffering of God in our day, in Peter's day, and also in our day today. That is, the waiting of God for the precious souls of the earth. Wherein, he says, eight souls were saved by water. Now watch this. Here's the application of the illustration, verse 21. The like figure, that is, 
the ark, the flood, the salvation of Noah and his family was a picture or an example that applies even today. It's a figure, a picture. He says the like figure whereunto even baptism, and the word baptism there in the Greek is the word immersion. It doesn't speak necessarily just of our, you know, dunking when we got saved, but it's speaking of something greater. It's speaking of an immersion. It's speaking of a flood that is yet happening, that can yet happen. An immersion, even immersion, doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God, listen, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is, the resurrection of Christ has paid the sufficient price for the salvation of souls, so that now salvation can be freely given. Now watch this, verse 22. Who, that is Jesus, is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. What is all this saying? Listen, listen, church. What we need in the day in which we live right now, as I said at the beginning of our study tonight, is an awakening of God. We need a movement of God to come upon this earth wherein he visits and he does something that doesn't just win a soul here or a soul there or convict. There's not, we, we thank God for every soul, every person that comes to Christ. That's how I came to Christ. But what we need in this day, probably more than any other time in human history, if it isn't for the second coming, we need a movement of the Holy Spirit of God. We need a shaking of the ground. We need more than a shower from heaven, more than a time. We need him to move. When the flood happened in Noah's day, it wasn't just that it rained for the first time. That was half of where the water came from. But the Bible tells us that the fountains of the deep were also let loose. That there was something that happened. There was a shaking of the ground and the entire earth was covered with those waters. What Peter tells us is that those waters are a type of salvation. Those waters are a type of the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what Peter closes with here is that he tells us that Jesus is the one that holds the authority to cause those waters to be brought forth again upon the planet. Not the waters of judgment. He said, didn't he, I will never again judge the water with that kind of flood. But we do very much need the water of revival, the water of the shaking, the water of God's movement upon the world. Two verses, just so we can close in context. He says, for as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. What's that? Listen, if you're suffering here tonight, to any degree and in any area or venue of your life, then account it, credit it, consider it, that the reason for that suffering is that God wants to use you to win souls in the same way that the sufferings of Christ brought a lost and dying world to himself. For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time, that is you and I, in the flesh to the lusts of men, but rather to the will of God. That we're to arm ourselves with the mentality, listen church, that if we are still here on the world, and for whatever length of time God has ordained that we be in this world, that the purpose And the dedication of our life be that we want to serve his will. What's his will? His will is that not any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. His will is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us while we were yet his enemies. His will is that there's 120,000 children in the city of Nineveh that don't know their right hand from their left hand, that are lost 
and dying right now unless they hear the message of the gospel and receive repentance through salvation. And His will for you and I is that He has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself and now you and I have the privilege of bearing that light to a lost and a dying world. And what Peter is saying here is, listen, that if you're going to be in this world, yes, you're going to suffer. Yes, there's going to be afflictions. No people aren't going to like you. But the purpose of our existence here is that we have the unique and very definite privilege of shaping and building heaven. And that is something that we cannot do once we get there. And so we're to arm ourselves with this mind. We must, church, listen to me. If you've shut me off, just turn me back on. The worship team can come. We're that close to being done. But listen. We must pray that God pour out His Spirit in the days that we live in. We must pray, Lord, either come back, blow the trumpet, seal it up, or pour out Your Spirit, Lord. Awaken. Shake the ground. Bring conviction, God, upon those that are lost. Awaken those. Break chains of bondage and of darkness. Bring light into the world again. Bind the forces and the powers of darkness. Lord, do what you've got to do. Unify your church. Bring us to our knees. Help us to forget about ourselves. Lord, what other purpose is there for us to live? If we live every day of our lives on this earth in prosperity and in bliss and in comfort and we never get sick and no one ever says anything ill of us and we make a ton of money and we retire and we get an RV and we live in Florida and we leave it to our kids and everyone talks about how successful and well we are and we say, wow, we were one of the chosen few that made it through the golden era of America's history. If we do that and then we die and we go to heaven. And we did not see the next generation birthed in the things of God and grounded in it. Then our lives have failed for the one purpose that actually means something in all of eternity. All that matters in this life for you and I is that we leave our mark on it for his name's sake. That's it. And what that means for you and I right now where we stand in this day and age is that we must fall on our knees and say, God, move. God, awaken. God, visit the earth. Do what you did in Isaiah's day when he pled, Lord, for his generation and he said, oh God, that you would come down, that you would melt the mountains like wax, that you would draw us back to yourself again. God, that you would bring light into the world, that the kingdom of God would come back to the forefront, that we would cease from being the tail and that we would start being the head again. God, that we would stop being so self-absorbed and self-consumed and stop living so much for ourselves. God, give us a burden for souls. Give us an ache like you gave to Jeremiah where he said that my heart burns within me. It cries out for the lost. God, give it to us. Because if he doesn't, then what are we living for? Jesus said in Luke chapter 18, he spoke this parable to the end that men ought always to pray and not to faint. And he said that there was a judge in a city that could care less about the will of God nor the person of men. But there was a widow who was afflicted and she came to him continually and begged that her cause would be met. And though he could care less for the widow or for the people that she was complaining against, yet because of her continual coming, he justified and met her need. And he said, And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry to him day and night, though he bear long with them? And then Jesus closed that parable with an open-ended question. And it applies. He says, But when the Son of Man comes... Will he find faith on the earth? And he didn't answer the question. What does faith look like for you and I in the days that we live in? Are we willing to get down on our knees and just say, God, would you do it again? And are we willing to pray that with the level of sincerity that we're willing to obey what he asks of us in order to see our part done? 
unity amongst ourselves, peace and reconciliation and love within our marriages, enduring suffering and giving an answer for the reason of the hope that's in us, having a readiness in our hearts to fulfill His will and the only will that matters. Listen, church, if we're going to be alive in the days that we're alive, shouldn't we make the most of it? Father, we just ask right now, as your church and as your people, that you would forgive us, O Lord, for being asleep in the light, for being apathetic to your cause, for seeing souls as empty faces, having no concern. Oh Lord, we're so guilty and we're so in need. And we see the peril of the times that we're living in. We recognize the sins of our own nation, the apostasy of even the church. And our prayer tonight, Lord, is that you would take however many of us are here in this room right now, that you'd let your searchlight shine upon our hearts, that you'd open up the contents of what's inside. And we ask, O Lord, that you would remove the things that have no business being there, that you would change us, Lord, that you'd open our eyes to see spiritual things, that you would unquench the flow of your spirit into and through and out of our lives. That you would pour out upon us again a mighty baptism of Holy Spirit fire and love and affection and feeling and repentance and truth and sincerity. Lord, you tell us that without you we can do nothing. You said, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman watches in vain. Father, would you please meet with us here tonight? Father, would you draw us off of the ground of this earth? Would you suspend us between earth and heaven? Would you speak to us, Lord? Would you call us, Lord? Would you open our ears to hear your voice that says, Who will go? Whom will I send? And Lord, would you find in this room right now a group of us that would say, Here am I. Send me, Lord, send me. There's nothing else, Lord. There's nothing else that we desire. Lord, please. We plead for the generation. We plead for our neighbors, Lord. We plead for our sons and our daughters. Father, hear us tonight. Lord, we wait upon you as we sing, Lord, as we worship. As we let these words sink in, Father. Please, prepare our hearts, Lord. Use us. Use us tonight.